Again, page 990 of your pew Bibles. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of our Lord. I suppose not many people here know this, but uh, I uh, spent some time growing up in uh, Iceland. Uh, You may think that because the Joneses are from Alaska and now I'm from Iceland, I only go to cold places. But it was uh, God's will that I would spend some of my growing up time in Keflavik, Iceland. And I remember uh, an occasion, uh, my brother must have been, uh, my younger brother, he must have been just five years old. And I remember my parents uh, walking us out of a building and loading us uh, into uh, the car, a small Volkswagen. And I had already been uh, put in uh, the back seat. And I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm trapped in the back of this car looking through the window. And uh, my little brother is uh, coming out of the building and my, my dad is walking with him. And a, and a big gust of wind uh, came. Uh, Iceland's just very, very windy. And a big gust of wind came and it just took my brother away. Uh, he, just was, he just was running a million miles an hour. And I, I just, uh, that, that image is just kind of burned in my head of looking through this tiny triangular window out of the back of that car and seeing my little brother, five years old, completely and totally outrunning a man in his late 20s. Uh, he just was flying. Um, big coat, his arms locked out like this, and his little legs moving as fast as they could. Uh, And he really was uh, outrunning my dad. Now he fell, and dad collected him, and so no trauma, no need for counseling. Uh, But 
that picture of, of the wind carrying Kevin uh, so uh, rapidly that my dad couldn't quite uh, catch up with him, uh, not until Kevin fell. Um, I, I, there's, there's a, a bit of, of that kind of spatial dimension in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in which Paul talks about a word that is sped forward. Um, and the Thessalonian Christians, they know this, that word has, has run before, uh, before them, and the word has done something and transformed them into uh, a new kind of community, a new kind of people. And as Paul is closing this letter, he, he wants that word to continue to speed forward, uh, to continue to be heard and believed, uh, but also to continue to push back the domain of the evil one, and then to continue to guide uh, God's people. But uh, Paul seems to be saying that if that word doesn't speed ahead, none of this is going to happen. And as I think of Kevin being driven by the wind and my dad not being able to catch him, it's almost as if uh, Kevin is running and there's a, there's a rope behind him and my dad is trying to keep up with this child to catch this child. And the word of God goes forward and the word of God uh, uh, compels us, moves us forward as a church body. Uh, we follow that word, we broadcast that word, and the word continues to lead us doing things that we ourselves uh, can't do, both in the proclamation of the gospel but also in the word of the gospel working in our lives and making us into a new community. Uh, the, the image is uh, provocative, and perhaps you didn't see that, but just in the, the word uh, going of before us, uh, speeding ahead. And, and I want, this is a two-point sermon. I, I want to begin with that picture of the word going in front of us and how Paul understands that and, and how the Thessalonian believers are to uh, pray because of what the word uh, does. Uh, but then the second point of the sermon uh, has to do with our own effort. And this might be uh, the, the tugging at the word from behind, uh, living our lives in accordance with that word so that by God's grace, the word would do what it is intended uh, to do. Uh, God says, my word will not return a void. Uh, and that's beautiful, but it's going to require a bit of a toil on the part of the church. And so the first part of the sermon has to do with that word going before us. And the second part of the sermon has to do uh, with uh, the toil of following God's word. Now, uh, perhaps you don't remember this. When we began in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I said that Paul began that letter in a very unique way. You know, we tend to think of letter writing as uh, an opportunity for us to share with people what's going on in our lives. Uh, I am writing to you because I want to get you up to speed with what's, with what's going on in my life. And Paul, as he began 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he did something unusual uh, that he, he didn't describe what's going on in his life. He actually described what was going on in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. And so it wasn't, here's how I'm doing. It's, here's how you're doing. You are being well cared for by God. You are being established by God's grace. You are enduring because he loves you. Remember, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 that Paul says, you are elect of God. You are chosen by him. And that was a unique way to begin 1 Thessalonians 1, but he's closing 2 Thessalonians 3 in a unique way as well. And if I could uh, cause this to stand out to you, I would say it this way. I would say that Paul finishes on a low note. Now you see at the very end of first of Second Thessalonians three that there's a beautiful benediction, wonderful words of encouragement. But what I mean by by finishing on a low note, the things that he says 
in the last chapter of this letter seem like a bad, a bad location for these things, to find people in the church who are idle, who are busybodies, and to warn them, but not only that, to avoid them. Do you see what I mean? It seems like a low note. Why would he talk about the church in that way at the very end of the letter? Any essay writer knows to finish strong. And this seems a funny place to finish, but it's not. And it's not because of where Paul begins with what the word does to create a gospel community. So the first point of the sermon, I know it's taken a while to get there. A race of the word the word going forward. The first five verses of our passage, Paul says in verse one, he gives them a command, finally, brothers, pray for us. Finally, brothers, pray for us. It's an, it's an actual command. And we looked last week at uh, commands in First and Second Thessalonians. Let me, let me see if I can remind you of all of the command words. Uh, the words that in the Greek language take a verbal form that, uh, that carries uh, power and presence. It's a strong word. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, we find the first two. Stand firm and hold or seize. Stand firm in the gospel and grab hold of and seize the gospel that was taught to you either by what we spoke or by what we wrote to you. Those are the first two command words in Second Thessalonians. These two, standing firm, holding on to, are required for the third command word, which is finally, brothers, pray. Pray for us. You see, the gospel is what opens the door for a reconciled relationship with God. And so uh, every time we pray, we're participating in a relationship. We're actually, as we are praying, we're participating in a, in a relationship that we did not fashion. We didn't make that relationship. God made that relationship through the power of the gospel. And so as we pray, we're participating in a gospel-born relationship now, what's interesting is that statistics show that every human being prays. Isn't that remarkable? Regardless of faith, people are just, by virtue of being people, prayers. But if you pray without standing firm in the gospel, without holding on to the gospel, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, Paul says that we can pray because of what the gospel has done. And so we stand firm in the gospel and then we seize upon that gospel and we're able to pray. Now there's three, so those are the first three command words of Second Thessalonians. There's three more, but I want to hold off on those. But notice the focus of this command to the Thessalonian Christians to pray. First, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. There it is that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. That's a part of their prayer. Uh, Paul believes that the word is instrumental for everything, that people are saved by the word, that the church is made by the word. And so he uh, says, pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. Uh, notice how Paul isn't there. He's not asking for a prayer for his articulation of that word. Whatever means possible, may that word speed ahead. And the second focus of Paul's command for prayer is that the word is honored. Uh, literally, in the Greek, it's that the word would be glorified. 
You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, that's what we're asking. We're asking that more and more people would call that name holy, would hallow that name. And here Paul is saying, pray that the word would speed ahead and that that word that has sped ahead would be glorified. It would be heard and received. And then the third thing that they're to pray is pray that evil men cannot prevent this. This is verse two. That evil men cannot prevent this. The word speeding forward and people hearing that word and glorifying God. Now here it seems to me to be three poles around which Paul's entire life orbits. This is Paul's focus. These are the things that he wants. Keep in mind, this is the man who showed up in Thessalonica, beaten and bruised, injured and in need of help. And more of that happens in Paul's life. But listen to what he wants them to pray for, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and that it would be uh, received and believed upon and that evil men would not be able to prevent this from happening. Now, there's something very exciting about Paul's command to them to pray. He says in verse one, as has happened among you. As has happened among you. Well, we need to take note of this. The Thessalonian Christians, they've actually already seen this happen. The thing that Paul is asking for them to pray for has already happened in their midst. The word of God spread ahead into Thessalonica a large city that was happily pagan, happily living a life without God. And God is the great interrupter sped into that city by his word. And that word was heard and it was glorified not among the entire population, but among those who were a part of the Thessalonian church. And if you look back in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, evil men have apparently been held bay to such a degree that this word has not only sped into the city of Thessalonica, heard and believed upon, glorified, but also evil men have been held bay to such a degree that all of Macedonia and all of Achaia can testify that the gospel is sounding forth from Thessalonica. From the perspective of a Christian in this particular church and this particular city, the things that Paul is asking that they would pray for have already happened in their own city, in their own midst. The word has come. People have believed. And, and evil people have been held back to such a degree that people in Macedonia and Achaia know that the gospel is sounding forth from this place. It's happening. The prayer request isn't something that is a, a hoped for something in the future, a, a potentiality. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. It's happened, it's happening. Now, as an aside, we looked last week at a passage uh, about the man of lawlessness in chapter 2. And I think that this point, the fact that this prayer request has already happening in the life of the Thessalonian Christians, I think this puts into perspective the man of lawlessness in chapter 2. Uh, there is an evil influence in the world. That's what chapter 2 says. There is a mystery of lawlessness at work. 2 verse 7. And then Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 3, not all have faith. That is true. Not all have faith. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. 
Paul says in chapter 2 that the evil one uh, will one day be destroyed by the very breath of Jesus. His, his uh, days are ultimately numbered. And I think of verse 3 of our passage this morning. The Lord is faithful. Yes, there is a mystery of lawlessness at work in the world. But the evil one will have his day. God will deal with him in Jesus Christ. And I think of that when I read in verse 3, the Lord is faithful. Don't forget that, Thessalonians. The Lord is faithful. And then on the plus side, uh, the, uh, even now, this uh, man of lawlessness, the evil one, this influence is actually being uh, restrained by God. Look what verse 3 of our passage says. The Lord will establish you and guard you against the evil one. How remarkable is that? Chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter, first five verses of chapter 3, they just go so well together. The prayer request has been answered. The man of lawlessness is at work, but he's being restrained. And the gospel is being heard and believed and and promulgated, expressed throughout the entire region. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, they just belong together. They agree with one another. It's Paul's way of describing both the extraordinary antagonism against God and the world and at the same time, the fact that the word of God is really powerful enough to transform lives. My, my brothers and sisters, both of these things are true, that there is a tremendous antagonism against God and the world. And at the same time, the word is going forth and it is powerful enough to transform lives because it's, it's happened to you and it's happened to me. Both of those things are true. Antagonism against God's word and at the same time, lives transformed by the power of the gospel. So chapter 2 and chapter 3 really do uh, belong together. It's important for us to keep in mind that the Thessalonian Christians, they already know this. The prayer, it's already been answered. Uh, This has already happened among you, Paul says in verse 1. And yet there is more to be done. Verse 4 says, what you have been doing, keep doing. You're doing it, keep doing it. Again, that's a refrain from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 as well. And so we preach the gospel with our speech and with our lives. And God, by his grace, uh, he uh, opposes the evil one. Uh, Now, it may be that very few actually hear the gospel and glorify the Lord, and yet we keep doing it. And there's a sense in which this is the painful feedback loop of the Christian life. We look out into a world that is antagonistic against the gospel. We see the, the mysterious work of the evil one all around us, and yet we are called to be a people who proclaim the gospel with, the word, with speech and with our lives, and we go out into that world. And not everyone believes, but every now and again someone uh, does uh, believe, and they become a part of the church body, and we, and we grow as a church body in our ability to care for one another. Uh, and yet we're, we're going out and we're doing that uh, again and again and again. Preach the gospel with speech and with our lives. The evil one opposes us. God restrains him. A few glorify the name of the Lord. Become a part of our number. And we keep doing it and doing it. And the relief for Paul comes in verse 5 of chapter uh, 3. Look what Paul says in verse 5. Even amidst this painful feedback loop, 
Even amidst the temptation to to just get out of this race, to jump off the bus as it were, to leave the church is far too painful. It's far too pathetic. Uh, the, the, uh, The weapon that we have, the weapon of the word seems far too small. The antagonism of the world is growing larger and larger. The temptation may be to leave, but the comfort in verse five is very important. I think it may be that verse five is the, uh, the thematic verse of uh, chapter three. He says that our hearts actually need to be operated upon, uh, redirected, straightened. That's the, the word that he uses, uh, redirected or uh, straightened. He says uh, in verse five, may the Lord direct your hearts. What we really need is something to happen deep inside of us a manipulation done by God's hand, by God's spirit, deep inside of us. Our hearts, they need to be redirected. The the word that Paul uses has to do with uh, being taken on a walk and guided there. Isn't that interesting? The heart needs to be taken on a walk and, and, and guided. And what Paul says that our heart needs is he says that our hearts uh, need to be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That's not something that we do. Listen to what verse five actually means. Our hearts need to be redirected to a deeper awareness, not of our love for God, but God's love for us. We need a deeper awareness for God's love for us that he gave his only begotten son for you and for me. To to talk about God's great affection is so important to the Christian life. And so these hearts, they, they, they need to be directed to have a deeper awareness for God's love. But not only that, a deeper awareness of Christ's steadfastness, not your steadfastness, but Christ's steadfastness. His strident obedience to the Father for your sake and for my sake. You see what verse five does? God shapes our hearts in such a way that these are things that happen. Let me put it to you another way. Uh, How do you know that God's spirit is working in you? None of your circumstances might change at all. In fact, your circumstances might grow worse. But do you think that it is possible that regardless of the change in circumstances, that you could be brought to a deeper awareness of God's affection for you and his son, and that you could be brought to a deeper awareness of Christ's steadfastness for your sake. Yes is the answer. That does happen. Many of us can testify to that very thing. The circumstances grew darker, but my nearness to God grew stronger. And I think this connects to the very, uh, well, close to the last verse of this chapter, verse 16. Look what Paul says as a reminder. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace when? When? At all times in every way. Now, that's a beautiful statement to be sure, but it is not a platitude. It is not pointless. It is not something that simply needs to be uh, uh, put on the wall of our house. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. What kind of times are the Thessalonians having right now? What kind of times? Times of affliction. Times of persecution. 
presumably times of doubt and anxiety, certainly given chapter two. The Lord of peace, that's the only time this phrase shows up in the Bible. My brothers and my sisters, let's not forget that he is himself the Lord of peace. May that Lord give you peace at all times in every way. No one has more of an authority over peace than him. Well, Paul is talking about the word going forth and doing an amazing work. And so Paul asked that they would pray that that would continue to happen. But it would seem to be that there is a toil or a labor uh, that is related to this word going forth. It seems like, uh, at least on first reading, there is an enormous disjunction here. The church goes forth into the world, uh, standing firm, holding on to the gospel, praying for the word, that the word would be received by more and more, uh, praying for uh, protection, that uh, the preachers of the gospel would be protected for the sake of the word. the first half seems to be uh, so victorious. And now Paul seems to switch gears and say, almost clearing his voice now, keep your house in order. The timing seems to be off. There are amazing things that are happening. Pray that it would continue to happen. Uh, God is at work. God is giving you peace. But keep your house in order. That's what he seems to be saying in the second part of this chapter. Now, Paul says that we do this in a couple of ways. Paul is going to admonish the Thessalonian Christians and the Christians here at Covenant to do two things. He's going to admonish them to consider the lives of brothers and sisters. Think about that. To notice the lives of your brothers and sisters. Now, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is going to chide the Christians for meddling. We're not to meddle, but you, you really must consider the lives of your brothers and sisters. Watch them carefully. Pay attention to them. That's the first thing Paul says that they need to do in order to keep their house in order. Now that is hard enough, isn't it? To watch the lives of my brothers and sisters. But the second thing is actually worse. Paul says, not only do I want you to consider their lives, to pay attention to them, but I want you to insert yourself into their lives. Insert yourself into their lives. Now, this is very uncomfortable. Uh, the, The command at the beginning of this chapter to pray, that's easy, it's done. It's almost as if I could say to Paul, got it, I'm with you, yes. You've shared three prayer requests, give me more. Give me three dozen prayer requests. I will checkbox this task forever. But to pay attention to the lives of my brothers and sisters and to insert myself into their life, that's hard. Or to allow my life to be scrutinized by my brothers and sisters that they might insert their lives into mine. I don't even want to talk about that. You see, you see why I think that in this chapter we, we have this, this 
kind of funny union between the two parts. Well, let's, talk, uh, let's talk about what's happening in this second half of 2 Thessalonians 3. First, Paul says to consider uh, the brothers and sisters around you. Uh, look into each, each other's lives. Uh, the, the motto to mind your own business, it actually doesn't work in the church on any level. Mind your own business. Paul is saying, don't just mind your own business. Mind the business of your brothers and sisters as well. And, and Paul says, look, notice us. Notice uh, myself and Timothy and uh, Silas when we were with you. Look, notice us. But, so that's interesting. Paul is actually uh, holding out his life to be scrutinized. He says in verse 7, he says, we weren't idle. That word for idle, it only shows up here. It could be irresponsible. We weren't irresponsible in front of you. Uh, you know, we didn't leave things to chance in terms of how we might be provided for. Uh, we were proactive. We did this when we were with you, in your very presence, he says in verse 7. Uh, the focus that Paul uh, wants to share with them is that, look, when you guys watched our lives when we were with you, notice this. We didn't actually presume upon you to do anything for us. We didn't make you do stuff in order for us to be in your presence. Uh, Paul says in verse 8, he says, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. That's just one of many illustrations. What he's saying is he's saying the three of us, we didn't inconvenience you so that we could tell you about Jesus. Isn't that, isn't that great? We didn't make you do stuff for us that we would stick around and tell you about Jesus. And he also says this, he said, uh, we actually, uh, in verse 8, we accepted the need to labor, right? He says, look, we were willing to work. And he says, we were willing to work night and day, night and day. I wonder why he starts with night and day, not day and night. It could be that uh, the very first day he was with them, he showed up during the daytime and he preached, but there was work to be done that very night. And so it was night first, then day. That's speculation, by the way, but it is good to reflect on these things in Scripture. But Paul says that we accepted labor. Uh, we didn't presume upon you to help us. We accepted the fact that we needed to labor. We were willing to do it, and then we wanted to actually be an example. Verse 9 says, uh, you know, part of it is we, we did this because we needed to. We needed to be able to eat. But verse 9, Paul says, uh, there was a relationship between what we preached and how we lived our lives. And we actually wanted to be an example to you. And we wanted you to believe the things that we said, but we wanted you to believe the things that we did as well. Right? We, we didn't want to burden you. We willingly accepted labor. And we wanted to be an example to you. Now, do you think when Paul says this, offering up his own life to be scrutinized, do you think when he says this, he's only concerned about gospel proclamation? Uh, he might be saying something like this. Look, when it comes to preaching the gospel, don't presume upon your listeners, make it easy for them. It's an evangelistic trick, right? That's what he's saying. It's not a whole life thing. It's something that you would read in a book in which the word evangelism is on the cover. It's a technique. That's what he's saying. Make it easy for them. But you know, there, there certainly is something uh, to that. 
I mean, when we proclaim the gospel, we don't want to be a burden to our hearers. We want to live lives before them in such a way that there are as few obstacles as possible for them to hear the gospel. Look at verse uh, 6. Paul is interested in an idleness that is uh, idleness that's not in accord with the tradition you received from us. Verse 6, that word for tradition, I think, uh, can be translated as word or even gospel, right? So it could be that he's just concerned about preaching the gospel, and when you do that, don't put any unnecessary uh, hurdles uh, before people. We know that the gospel has bad things to say to people. For sure, the gospel says you are a sinner. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Those are hard things for people to hear. Those are true things. They must hear them. But those obstacles that you can control, that you can lower, don't don't be obnoxious around people. Don't show up on the job and uh, work uh, work in such a way that you're not working as hard as they are. Uh, Don't distract people from their work, lower those obstacles that you might be able to preach the gospel to them. Now we can talk more about what that looks like. I think for sure we live honestly, we live above reproach, we show hospitality to all. These are important things in gospel proclamation. But Paul here is not only concerned about gospel proclamation. And here's the evidence. He says in verse six, look for brothers and sisters who are walking in idleness. Walking in idleness. That word for walking refers to a lifelong habit. Look what he says in verse 11. We hear that some of you walk in idleness. No, Paul's not only talking about gospel proclamation. I didn't want to burden you. I accepted labor and I wanted to be an example before you because I needed to preach the gospel to you. But once we live together in the church... That's not something that we need to do anymore. What Paul is saying is he's saying that this idleness is a habit and that Paul wants that to be stopped in the life of the church. And so here is what he wants us to notice. He says, do not walk to be a burden to others. In all of your life, as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, don't make it a habit of your life to be a burden to others. Now, to be sure, we are, we are all a burden to one another. It is hard to talk to people who are very unlike us from different walks of life, different backgrounds and experiences. We are so different as a church. I want to admit that it's hard for any two of us to get together and have a peaceful relationship in which there's no anger at all. Now, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. Human relationships are actually very challenging. All of them are. We're sinners. But what Paul says is he says, in your habit of life, don't live in such a way that you're just always a burden to people. I think this is what he's referring to in verse 12. He says, we ought to be the kind of people who earn our own living. You know, see, this may be stepping on toes, but... Paul's content stepping on toes. We're not to be a burden uh, on people unless there's just something uh, remarkable in our lives. Sometimes uh, we uh, are physically unable to work. Uh, Sometimes God, by his uh, ordained hand, he just hasn't provided a, a job for us. 
But what Paul wants us to know is he wants us to know that uh, we're not a people who are meant to just, just wait to be cared for by others. We're actually made to earn our own living. We're made to work. And, and that's what he's saying in verse 10. He says, uh, we need to be the kind of people who accept labor. We don't resist labor. We're willing to work. We don't avoid work. We actually, according to verse 10, have a desire to work. That needs to be a part of us. Uh, even if we are infirm, there needs to be a desire to work, a desire to, to, to be productive. It's just part of who we are. I think what Paul is saying here is he's, is he's actually uh, being a good creational theologian. He's carrying us back to, to how men and women were made by God in his own image. That we're to be a people who are not a burden to others, that we actually uh, want to work to earn our own living. And then uh, look what he says in verse uh, 12. We, uh, we want to be an example to others. Uh, even those who are more able than ourselves. How interesting in verse 12 when Paul says that, uh, that we need to do our work uh, quietly, to accept quiet work. He means that in a couple of ways, but certainly one of the ways is sometimes our work is very quiet. It's almost invisible. People hardly know uh, we're, we're working. It's the kind of work that, that, that doesn't have a public face. People don't see it. You go off someplace and you work very hard and you come back. Uh, it's a quiet job and that people don't really see the results of it. They wonder what you do. Certainly, he's referring to that when he says uh, that we need to uh, expect that even uh, quiet work is worth doing. But we're an example in all things to one another, and we're we're an example uh, by not being a burden to others. With an we have an acceptability to labor and work, and we are willing to even work quietly, but still hoping that uh, there's something about our work that is an example to others that everyone would work. Now, notice something here. Notice something about idleness. Paul doesn't say this. I think he does elsewhere. But here, he doesn't say that idleness breeds all kinds of sins. You see, the work of the evil one, it seems, would be helped by our idleness. Paul doesn't say that here. But the work of the evil one, the influence of the man of lawlessness, would seem to be helped by our idleness. Uh, Psychologists know that boredom is a remarkably conducive agent for sin. Statistics show that boredom provides a rich soil for all kinds of sins, for sexual sin, for addictive hobbies, for uh, poor uh, health. There's something about Borden that actually does that. And Paul doesn't say that here. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul admonishes against a busybody uh, lifestyle. And there he says a busybody lifestyle is a kind of lifestyle that leads to gossip. A kind of lifestyle that leads to uh, needless meddlesomeness in people's lives. Idleness actually serves the man of lawlessness more than it serves the life of the church. I think that's what Paul is saying. And so we are actually watching one another's lives, but you see what Paul always does, we're watching our own lives, checking our own idleness, 
checking our own resistance to work, checking our own desire to not be an example before others. But then it gets really, really tricky because Paul says he wants us not only to notice these things in others and in self, but he wants us to be willing to insert ourselves into one another's lives. Now, I told you to expect this. We have looked at three imperative verbs in 2 Thessalonians to hold on to the gospel, to stand firm in the gospel, and to pray. The last three are right here in this chapter. The first one is in, cha- is in verse 10. Don't let these people eat. That's a, that's a command. Don't let these people eat. In verse 15 are the second two. Do not regard these people as enemies. And also in verse 15, warn these people as brothers and sisters. Don't let them eat. Don't regard them as enemies. And warn them as brothers and sisters. Those three verbs control everything that we're to understand about what it looks like to insert our lives into the lives of our brothers and sisters. All three of these, they seem to balance each other out. Now, don't let the people eat. Certainly can't be, don't let them starve to death and die in your very presence. Why? Well, verse 15, you can't regard them as enemies. You might allow an enemy to starve and die, though you shouldn't. But in verse 15 also, uh, you have to actually have them living and healthy enough so that they can be warned as brothers and sisters, be warned with affection. Do you see how these three things, they, they, they go together? We're not called to let them starve. We're, we're never given an opportunity to simply just treat them like enemies. And we, we aren't even allowed to shun them, to never talk to them at all, because we have to have the kind of relationship in verse 15 that allows us to be able to warn them, to appeal to them with Scripture as our brothers and sisters. 10, verse 10 and verse 15 have the last three command verbs of 2 Thessalonians, and they all hang together. Now, there's, there's still some things that are confusing about Paul's admonition to them. Uh, for instance, uh, what it looks like to inculcate in them uh, a shamefulness. It could be that Paul just wants us to use God's word that we would uh, make it known to them in such a way that they see that this is a part of life that needs correction. It could be that, all under the authority of God's word. But I want us to notice This is community life together. Paul is saying that you Thessalonian Christians amidst persecution and affliction, a desire for the word to go forth, but you also have to take care of your own house. You you have to pay attention to each other. And that means you need to get close to one another, uh, spend time with one another, that you can uh, pay attention to each other. Uh, But you also have to be willing to, dare I say, warn one another express an opinion about someone's life. But this is, this is what it means to live together as a community. Now, I think there's an admonition here for us as a larger church. We can't use our largeness uh, as an excuse for doing this. We actually need to spend time with one another. We need to, we need to be with each other, that we would learn about one another's lives. If we only try and warn what is going on in one one another's lives at this massive distance between one another, 
It seems to me we're treating our brothers and sisters an awful lot like treating our enemies, shouting at them over the wall, telling them what they need to do. We, we actually uh, need that close connection that we would understand what's going on in one another's lives, that our lives would be understood by others, but that both of us would be able to speak into each other's lives in a context of love and trust. That's, a, that's a, a pretty stiff, I think, application to us. But keep in mind what role this section plays in Second Thessalonians right here at the end, parting comments. But we do need to ask this. You know, here we have Paul opening this chapter in uh, one through five with this uh, wonderful prayer of the, that the gospel would, be, uh, would, would go before and that the gospel would be received and uh, glorified uh, and that the evil one would be pushed back. That's the beginning of the letter. And then here at the end of the letter, we have uh, this, uh, this uh, admonition about how the community needs to live together. Uh, I wanna finish my sermon by considering two ways in which these two halves, they actually go together. They actually work well together. The first is this. You know, there's more to the gospel than simply intellectual assent. There's more to the gospel than just hearing it and going, that does work for me. I say yes. I say I. There's more to the gospel than just intellectual assent. The matter of idleness is of gospel importance to Paul. The way that we live our lives, the the habits of our lives. For for Paul, uh, idleness actually is an aspect of the work of the gospel. A well-lived life matters. A a life that indicates gospel belief matters. Our work against the evil one begins with the habits of our lives. Think about that for a moment. The way that we live our lives actually helps to restrain the evil one. We're the kind of people who are good to one another, love one another, The love that we have when it's seen by the outside world actually uh, is an inducement to hear more about this gospel in a world that is fiercely broken. There's more to the gospel than intellectual assent. The gospel, it's a working instrument in, in how our lives matter because the word is implanted in our lives. It's God's instrument to save us, to redeem us. But that same gospel is God's instrument to sanctify us. It governs our lives. It works on us. It performs surgery on us. It tells us what we need to think and say and do as a believing person. The gospel's an instrument that converts and it's an instrument that guides And there it is, brother and sister, implanted in your life as a saved person. There's more to the gospel than intellectual assent. That's the first reason why these two sections of 2 Thessalonians 3 go together. And then here is the last one, and I'll close. The church body needs to be this kind of body in order for the gospel to have lasting significance. You know, there is a gospel imperative for our life together that if we expect the word to speed ahead, if we expect people to hear the word and believe, if we expect for the evil one to be restrained, we must notice sin in one another's lives. We must admonish sin in one another's lives. Do you hear how these things connect? 
I go back to that, that imagery of my brother being driven by the wind and my dad uh, fiercely chasing him. My dad would have done anything to catch him. My dad would never, ever, ever stop. And our lives need to be like that. We are so desirous for the gospel to go forward. I will submit myself to my brothers and sisters and allow them to admonish me with God's holy word. I so desire the gospel to go forth and that men and women to glorify my God. I will submit myself to you that you can warn me and shape me and call out my sin. I want the gospel to go forth. But on the same token, you also have to allow me to do that to you. We want the gospel to go forth. I will look at your life with gospel eyes. I will have gospel expectations for your lives. I will speak God's word to you. I will not be afraid of you, what you think about me or how popular I am before you. I want the gospel to go forth and I will speak. Isn't this beautiful? You know, on the one hand, it's, that is it. I do not want to be a part of this body anymore. It's, it, you know, we're all together, so you're, you're way too nervous to just walk out right now. <laughs> but I'm reading your heart because I'm reading my heart. I don't want a part of this. It's too much. But this is our life. In God's grace, this is our life. The gospel has done that to us. Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, we have a few things to ask of you. We ask that you would convince our hearts, that you would direct our hearts, that you would direct us to your great love for us and Christ's great steadfastness for our sake. Oh, Father, convince our hearts. And then, Father, we ask, related to that, that you would help us to root out the idleness in our lives. That you would help us, Father, by your great grace to reshape the habits and patterns of our lives. And, Father, we, of course, have to ask this. Would you help us to receive the gentle correction of our brothers and sisters that we might do this? We thank you, Father for your church on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.